you would please remain standing, and if you have your Bibles, turn your Bibles to Job chapter 1. The passage is also printed at the bottom of page 5 and into page 6 in the bulletin. We're going to look at Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12, and we're going to jump to verse 20 and read through chapter 2, verse 10. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house? And all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hand, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And then jump down to verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited against me, incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores, and the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women should speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Let us pray. Father God, we come to your word this morning. And we understand that you are sovereign, and yet there's aspects of your sovereignty that can be difficult for us to wrap our minds around. But God, we trust in you, and we ask that you would comfort us by the very truth that you are the sovereign God in control of all things. Even amidst what has been a difficult year for us individually as a church, nationwide and even globally. May you comfort us. May you instruct us. May we be moved like Job to worship you, whether in times of blessing or sorrow. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. As we prepare to say goodbye to another year this week, an honest evaluation may be helpful. 2020 has been a strange frustrating, 
depressing, painful, and difficult year. You may have some more adjectives that I have missed, but I think for the whole, I've gotten the majority of the feelings for most people when it comes to the year 2020. If you are more of a visual person and you need a visual evaluation over the course of this week, do yourself a favor and just Google in 2020 plans meme. If you don't know what a meme is, it's where people take pictures and they do funny things with them. I'm not a meme maker, but I enjoy a good meme every so often. My favorite is probably one where the left side of the screen shows the Titanic in its majesty, in its glory, about to set sail, and under it it says, my plans for 2020. And then the right side of the screen, under the heading of 2020, is an iceberg. Or another one, if you're familiar with the Titanic film from 1997, on the left side is again, my plans, and it's Rose, ready for the ball in her glorious gown, and on the right side is Rose at the end of the film, aged, saying, it has been 84 years. This year has rocked many of us, like crashing into an iceberg rocked the Titanic. It has inched along at a snail's pace. It feels like a miracle that we have gotten to this point, five days away from a new year. All of the hopes and the dreams that many had for this year quickly sank into the frozen waters of sickness, quarantine, canceled plans, hardship, strife, illness, and sorrow. The majority of the worldwide population is ready to leave 2020 in the rearview mirror, hoping that 2021 will offer improvement, some kind of fulfillment to the things that have been missed out on this past year. And while there is nothing wrong with this type of wishful thinking, one thing we as disciples of Jesus Christ must remember after both the year that we've had and also the year that is about to be is that God is sovereign. As crazy as 2020 was, it was not out of the control of our creator, not even for a millisecond. It was not a surprise that somehow caught him off guard he wasn't prepared for. He had to make quick adjustments. It was not a wrinkle that he quickly needed to get out the iron and straighten it to get it ready and right again. The passage before us in Job 1 and 2 provides us with the proof we need that God was and is and will continue to be sovereign in 2020, 2021, and beyond. Starting this morning, we're going to be taking a, a small dive, not even a dive, maybe a dipping our toe into the water of the book of Job. I say small because covering the book of Job in three weeks is an impossible task. There's barely enough time in three weeks to skim the surface of the book. So instead of navigating all the speeches of Job and his friends as they sit there together, we're going to spend our time on the few occasions where it is the Lord who speaks. And so I've entitled the next three weeks the series, God in Job. If you lump together, the Lord essentially speaks three times. He speaks here in the beginning in chapters 1 and 2. He speaks again famously at the end in verses 38 and 39 in his first response to Job. And then after a brief confession of Job, he speaks again in verses 40 and 41. 
we will take each one of these speeches over the next three Sundays to hopefully provide us a better understanding of who God is. In a way, the aim is to get us back to some of the basics regarding what Scripture reveals about the God that we serve. For what better way for us to end one year and to prepare for another than to allow God's Word to remind us and instruct us about His nature and His character and His ways. And I'll even remove the tension for you. Today we're looking at God is sovereign. Next week we'll look at God is wise. And then the third Sunday we will look at how God is great. And hopefully these will encourage us as we look back on the year that has been, but also strengthen us as we look ahead to the year that is coming. And whatever it holds in store for us as individuals, as families, as a church family, and as citizens of this nation and the globe at large. But again, for our purposes this morning, we're going to focus on the difficult but wonderful truth that God is sovereign. We can be encouraged. The Lord stands in complete control over all things in all places for all time. The outline is provided in page 8 in the bulletin for you. Job 1 through 2 shows us first that God's sovereignty is comprehensive. Second, that God's sovereignty can be challenging. And then thirdly, that God's sovereignty brings comfort. First, we start with God's sovereignty is comprehensive. There is no person, no place, no thing in the entire universe over which God does not have complete control. This makes sense at the most basic level because sovereignty literally means complete control. A sovereign person is one who exercises supreme authority in a limited sphere. It's the definition. But now for God, we know that his sphere is not limited. It is universal. This is where he breaks away from the definition that we were just given. As creator of the universe, his sovereign control extends to every square inch of it. He controls it. He sustains it. He watches over it all. And it has to be this way. As the late R.C. Sproul said, if God is not sovereign, God is not God. So how do we see God's comprehensive sovereignty in these first two chapters of Job? For one, we see that God is sovereign over all of his creatures, whether angelic or human. We see in both verse 6 of chapter 1 and verse 1 of chapter 2, it says there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. These sons of God represent the entire host of heaven. All the angels, not one of them left out. It is the picture of the heavenly court being called together with the Lord God seated in the middle on his throne. All of his servants and his subjects have come before him at his summons. They are ready for service. They're prepared to report on the spheres over which God has given them authority. They stand waiting any and all commands that the Lord God is going to give them. Just a couple of weeks ago, Bethany and I kept with our tradition of watching White Christmas. 
For those who know the movie, as much as it is a romantic story about two men and two women, it is also the story about the love two soldiers have for their former colonel. He is their beloved sovereign. When he walks into the room, whether they're in battle or whether they're, they're visiting his inn, they stand at attention. They follow his instruction. And where the story falls apart, unlike real soldiers, I assume they sing their affection for him when he walks into a room. I haven't been in a company of soldiers, but somehow I don't envision soldiers breaking into song when their colonel walks into a room. I could be wrong. But the heavenly scene in Job kind of opens in this way. The entire heavenly host, the army of heaven, is reporting to its sovereign. And every square inch of creation is represented by their gathering. And God alone is the one sitting over it all, ruling and reigning and governing. This picture contrasts the pictures of other mythologies. For example, the Greeks. Where in their cases, when the heavenly council gets together, all the gods come and they fight with one another. They contend with one another. They're all equal, jostling for power and authority and control. In Job's picture, there is no rival. God has no equal. He's the one sitting on the throne. All the other characters, all the other servants are exactly that. They're servants, they're messengers, come to do his bidding. And this includes Satan himself. Even as he enters as this kind of intruder, uninvited, he enters under the control of God. We see that Satan coming before the Lord after all his roaming and his wandering, this language of going to and fro and walking up and down, emphasizes his scheming, his heart's intent on destroying it fits what Peter would later tell the church in his letter, that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But still, despite these antics, despite these schemes, the adversary is known by God. Satan speaks when he's questioned. He can't not speak. He needs God's permission to do anything. And for whatever reason, God grants it to him twice. In speaking about Job, he tells the adversary that all that he has is in your hand. But he also restrains him. He says, only against him, don't stretch out your hand. Or spare his life. Satan can only do what he has been permitted. Nothing more. Contrary to what some may think in the culture around us, in other religions, Satan is not some kind of rival or equal power to God. Yes, he has power. Yes, he has ability. Yes, he does seek to destroy, and he does destroy. But never, not once, does he do so outside of the limits that God has placed on him and around him. Ultimately, the accuser can only serve the purposes of his maker. One commentator says of Satan, he may be the chief mischief maker of the universe, but he is still a mere creature, a puny compared with the Lord, more like a nuisance. 
The story of Job then unfolds according to God's sovereign control over all of his creatures. Even though Satan's hand is at work in destroying Job and taking from him, he is doing so under the authority of God. But the text not only reveals that God is sovereign over all his creatures, he's also sovereign over all circumstances. Whether success or suffering, good or evil, rejoicing or weeping, God controls all of it. And Satan is actually the first one to confess it. Look at verse 10 of chapter 1. He accuses God in a way, Have you not put a hedge around him and his house, and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. Satan blames God for the blessing that Job has. He puts it in his lap, rightfully so. And if you jump back to verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1, you see these blessings. Job is called the greatest of all the people in the east. He's got children, ten of them, which is a sign of abundance. He's got flocks, herds, servants, and material wealth. Job is the kid with all the toys. He's the neighbor with the nice house and the latest tech. He's the businessman who always strikes while the iron's hot and is making lots of goods on his investments. He is the picture of physical blessing. And it is all because of the Lord. The Lord has blessed Joseph with abundance and protection. So in a way, Satan's theology is accurate. It is the Lord who has blessed Job. And Job himself recognizes this. Even after everything is stripped away, everything is taken from him, he proclaims, looking back on what he had, the Lord gave. Asking his wife, shall we not receive good from the Lord? Job knew where his blessing had come from. The sovereign hand of God. He simply received what the Lord had graciously decided to give. And this kept him humble. And because of this, Job also understands the other side of the coin. Just as it is God's to give, so it is also God's to take away. And so even in the depths of his agony and his despair, he declares, and the Lord has taken away. Again, asking his wife, shall we also not receive evil? Or literally that word means disaster, calamity, from the Lord as well. Job does not understand why this is happening. He's in the dark. However, he does not budge on the fact that in spite of all that has happened, going from blessing to suffering, God is still sovereign. He is still in control of all these circumstances. His world has been shaken to the core. He has lost everything. But none of this threatens Job's understanding and belief that God is still in control. As D.A. Carson writes on this, Job does not rush to the conclusion that an enemy has done this outside of God's sanction. His first response isn't that someone has kicked God off his throne. Job's world is upside down, but it is not because God has lost control or abandoned his spot as seated on the throne. No, God is just as sovereign as he was moments ago when Job had all his stuff and his health. He is equally sovereign over Job's suffering as he was over his blessing. 
And as we look back on what has been an upside-down 2020, we need to be reminded of what Job proclaims, that God is in control. To borrow the words from our call to worship, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in earth, in heaven, and on earth. The chaos of this global pandemic is under his mighty hands. For reasons unknown to us, he has allowed it. The uncertainty and the panic that has surrounded this nation's leadership crisis, if you will, is not and has not been a crisis to him. He knows that the nation's rage. He's the one who places and replaces rulers as he sees fit. And all the social unrest that we have endured, that has burdened many and spilled over into streets and various cities, has not come as a surprise to him. He is not sitting there wondering, now how did this happen? How did I miss that? And more personally, whatever situation that you are facing, as individuals that we face as a church, is not beyond his sovereign rule. Your sickness, your struggles, your hardships, all of your suffering is in his hands. And the same holds true for whatever blessing it is that you've received. So let us, like Job, proclaim the comprehensive sovereignty of our God. That the Lord has given, the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. Now while God's sovereignty is comprehensive, we also see in Job that God's sovereignty is and can be challenging. It is difficult at times for our finite minds to fully grasp the mystery of God's complete control over all things. Things do not always make sense to us. Job 1 through 2 provides some of the things that might make us scratch our heads. First, why is it that God brings up Job? Why in the court scene is he the one who directs Satan's attention to Job? He asks him point blank, have you considered my servant Job? There is none on the earth like him. It seems as though in all of jo uh, Satan's roaming and wandering, he has somehow missed out on Job. Job has escaped his radar. He's not even considered him for a moment. Maybe it's because of the protection that he sees over him. There's no way that Satan can, can get into Job. Or maybe Job seems like too difficult of a target. Whatever the case may be, it is only when the Lord says, have you considered Job, that you kind of see Satan begin scheming. He starts then throwing around the accusations. He only loves you because of the stuff you give him. He only fears you because you've made his life easy. Of course he's righteous. He's never suffered. The glimpse that we get behind the scenes, though, doesn't ease the tension all that much. Yes, through Job, Satan is ultimately going to be proven a liar. Each accusation that he made will crumble as Job worships the Lord in his suffering. God will be vindicated as the one worthy of love and fear because of who he is, not because of what he gives. And we know that through suffering, Job's faith is going to be tested and proven genuine. But still, this isn't the easiest for us to reconcile. 
This is not how we might go about achieving such ends. We wrestle with the question, why would God allow it to happen this way? Couldn't there be another way? Or how do we handle the fact that Job is an innocent sufferer? Now when I say innocent sufferer, I don't mean that Job was perfect or that he was sinless. Neither am I ignoring the fact that all suffering is tied to sin. The fact that sin is means suffering is. No, by innocent suffering, I mean Job's suffering is not a direct relation to a particular sin. Job is not receiving judgment for a specific sin. As D.A. Carson also writes, although the Bible insists that all sinners will eventually suffer, it does not insist that each instance of suffering is retribution for sin. Doubtless, if, there, if this were not a fallen world, there would be no suffering. But just because it is a fallen world, it does not follow that there is no innocent suffering. Again, this is also a challenge for us to grapple with. We can appreciate, try not the best word to use, but we can appreciate suffering that is directly, directly related to particular sin. If the punishment fits the crime, we nod in agreement. We understand when people reap what they sow, whether it be something good or something bad. When hard work has resulted in bonuses, we applaud. When laziness leads to firing, we also applaud. But what happens when the punishment does not fit the crime? Or worse, what happens when there's punishment for a crime that hasn't even been committed? What happens when a child suffers at the hand of an abuser for no reason? Or when individuals are victimized out of their own ignorance or their innocence? What happens when people suffer, sometimes terribly, despite living lives that faithfully love God and love others? Because this is Job. God has even said so. He called Job a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. As you look at the character of Job in these first two passages, he doesn't deserve this. He especially doesn't have, deserve to have all of his stuff stolen, his children murdered, and his health left in shambles. Of all the things that leave us feeling confused and puzzled about the story of Job, this part is clear. Job is not suffering as a result of his sin. And his response proves his innocence. Twice it says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And the whole scenario repeats itself in chapter 2. Job's righteousness, his uprightness is emphasized even in the face of suffering and confirmed by his response. And it leaves us with the challenging question, if God is sovereign over every square inch, why does he allow and permit such suffering? It is a hard question for us to wrestle with. And as we're going to see in the next two weeks, we're not really given an easy answer. Job will not be given an easy answer even after, at the very end, when his health and his wealth are all restored. His ten children would remain in the grave. 
his body would still likely carry the scars of the boils and the scratching that he does while he sits there in ashes. And as we look back on the year that's been, there are no easy answers for this past year either. On the one hand, could all the events that have transpired be tied to some kind of divine judgment for the sins of the nation, either this one or others? Absolutely. Scripture does provide plenty of reason for such a case. And a track record of this country alone, regardless of whatever party is in power, is filled with sin, rebellion, and evil. But that doesn't necessarily explain the suffering that takes place on an individual level. What about the older folks this past year who have been forced to suffer in isolation and in quarantine, some of them right up into their death alone? What about those suffering from higher levels of domestic abuse that's been tied to the shutdowns, the isolations, the quarantines? What about the individual families who've experienced and suffered loss, some related to illness, some related to violence, some related to a whole list of other reasons. And if you're aware of the suffering of the church universal, what about the countless stories coming from other nations where our brothers and sisters are being slaughtered simply for obedience to God's call, to witness to the nations, to make disciples, the meat of Job's book, we're not going to dive into it over these next few weeks, is essentially Job and his friends wrestling with the question of why. And they find no neat and tidy answers. They're wrong in some ways, they're right in other ways, and it's kind of a jumbled mess trying to figure out what God is doing. And for us this morning, the truth is, rarely do we find neat and tidy answers either. The challenge of innocent suffering is not one we can just easily push aside. There is a level of mystery that we cannot and likely will not understand. However, such mysteries do not prove that God is somehow no longer in control. They are not exceptions to the rule of God's comprehensive sovereignty over every square inch of creation they may and likely will remain mystery to us as finite creatures. But they are not mysteries to our sovereign God. He knew what he was doing in and through Job. He had a plan. He knows what he is doing in our current situation. He has a plan. His sovereignty may be a challenge for us, but it is not a challenge for him. And this then brings us to our final point, that even though God's sovereignty is a challenge, it is also meant to bring comfort. The truth of God's complete control is a great source of encouragement in times of blessing and suffering. We see Job takes comfort in knowing that God is still in control. He is able to worship. It says, then Job arose, he tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground. He's mourning, he's grieving, he's in anguish, and he worshipped. He said, blessed be the name of the Lord. Don't miss the fact that Job is hurting. He's not a stoic. He is mourning, he is grieving. 
He is in a place that no one on earth would envy. And I don't even think we would wish such a place on our worst enemies. In addition to the suffering of losing his children, his livestock, his wealth, the physical suffering is tremendous. These aren't simply just boils or, or, in, or scabs on his skin. It is likely that his flesh is rotting off of his bones. These things never healed. Every time he scratched them, they opened and deeper. They're probably covering his face, leaving him disfigured, probably totally unrecognizable when his friends come and sit with him. It is highly likely that he's depressed. And then you have his wife, who doesn't seem to offer too much help or counsel, because she's probably experiencing her own level of grief. And then as his friends come, and you read the rest of the book, they only try to convince him that he's the worst of possible sinners. They convince him, or try to convince him, that blessing will return if you repent of sins, sins that Job hasn't even committed. But regardless of all of this, Job is compelled to worship. In his grief, he proclaims that God is sovereign, even over his suffering and his anguish. In the midst of his pain, he sings of God's blessings. I find this an immense comfort. Because I have never been in a situation comparable to Job, and I pray I never will be. But if he can, by the power of God's Spirit, worship in such a state, if he can see the sovereignty of God in this, then so can I. And I can cry out in my grief and my anguish, knowing that my God is still seated on the throne, that he has not been defeated, he has not been usurped. He has not left the throne unoccupied. And then I can declare to a world that views suffering as meaningless, or suffering as only that which needs to be ended, not endured, that God is still good even when he chooses to take and not give. And I must admit and even confess that this past year I have not done much worshiping in the midst of suffering. I have been more prone to complaining or grumbling or blaming about why things aren't the way they should be, of why life has to be difficult, of why we can't do this, or why we have to do that. Instead of praising the Lord that he is still sovereign, that he is still sitting on the throne, and that he gives and that he takes. Because the fact that he is seated on the throne is all the comfort that we need in the best of times and in the worst of times. Because even though our world may be out of control, God is not. He is working, as Romans 8.28 tells us, all things for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. We may not only always know that purpose or how it can be good, but we can still worship God who is sovereign in control of it all. We can and are invited to bring our grief and our anguish and to find comfort in his reign over all things. But greater still than being able to find comfort in being able to worship is the comfort in knowing there was another innocent sufferer like Job. The reality of Job's physical suffering that left him scarred and likely unrecognizable 
should draw our mind's attention to another servant of the Lord who would suffer. And the prophet Isaiah would declare that as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind. And then in a more famous passage in Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken by God, smitten and afflicted. And then from the passage that Dan read in Acts 4, we see how God is sovereignly in control of all the events surrounding this suffering servant's death. The apostles declared to do whatever your hand had planned and predestined to take place. As horrible as innocent suffering is to our human understanding, the truth of the matter is our Savior knows such suffering intimately. He was handed over to the schemes of the evil one through evil men. He suffered physically, emotionally, spiritually. And yet because of his innocent suffering, you and I are saved. Because unlike Job, Jesus was perfect. He was blameless and upright in that he never sinned. His desires, his thoughts, his words, his deeds were completely righteous at each and every moment of each and every day. And he went to the cross condemned to suffer and die as a perfect, innocent man. And because he did, he paid the penalty for our sin and defeated the adversary, defeated the one who accuses us before the throne of God. And he's promised to return again to put this adversary under his feet and to do away with all suffering. And so it is ultimately through this suffering servant, this innocent sufferer, that we can find comfort. Our Savior knows the suffering and the anguish that we face. He is present with us and through it all. And because of him, he will bear fruit in and through it. And so at the very least, we can rest assured, as Peter teaches us in his first letter, that through suffering, the tested genuineness of our faith will be proven, and that it will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the fact that God controls all things should then give us hope. It should comfort us in the midst of the darkest trial or the greatest triumph. Our Savior has suffered the worst on our behalf. And all of our suffering then can only draw us closer to him and see his nature reflected more and more in us as we rely upon him and draw strength from the power that he gives. None of us know what the year ahead holds in store. It could be another year like 2020, filled with strangeness, strife, suffering. It could be something better to be a Debbie Downer, it could be something worse. It might be hard for us to imagine anything worse than another year of quarantine, masks, isolation, and unrest. Even still, the sovereign control of God will not be usurped or thwarted. The attempts of our enemies, what, of our enemy, whatever they may be, can only ultimately serve his purposes. And the raging of the nations will only work out his will.
the individual sufferings that we face as individuals and as a church will only serve to make us more like him and deepen our worship as we rest on him more and more. The fact that God is sovereign, while certainly a high and mysterious truth, is equally intended to be a great source of comfort to our weary, anxious, and troubled hearts. And it should lead us also, though, to thanksgiving. For as the late R.C. Sproul also said, the more we understand God's sovereignty, the more our prayers will be filled with thanksgiving. We will thank him that he is seated on the throne. We will thank him that whatever is facing us has not occurred outside of his control. So if God is in control, we can worship, we can be thankful. We can lift up our prayers and our praises knowing that they fall on the ears of the one who upholds all things by the power of his word. Be encouraged. The Lord stands in complete control over all things in all places for all time. Let us pray. God, we thank you for this precious truth. In what has been, again, a difficult year, you have remained sovereign. There has not been a moment where you have stepped down from the throne or where someone has taken you off it. And we give you praise and we give you thanks that even everything that has unfolded, the blessings and the sorrow, you have used to accomplish your purposes, set in eternity past. May that give us comfort even as we wrestle in it day in, day out. May it lead us to worship, to give you thanks, and to proclaim your goodness to us, the one who gives and takes away. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.